Happy Wednesday! You're listening to Mama Murdered a Podcast. I'm your host, A.B. This week on Mama Murdered a Podcast, we'll be covering the case of Patricia Stallings. Her and her husband David had a three-month-old baby boy who they loved and cherished, naturally. But when Ryan was rushed to the emergency room as a result of poisoning, all fingers pointed to his mom, Patricia. Did she poison her son? Or did the hospital staff, the police investigators, and the prosecutor on her case have it all wrong? We're all here for one thing and one thing only, so let's get it. David Stallings and his wife Patricia, who everybody called Patty, were living and building their own American dream together. In 1986, David had been working as a plate engraver, and he was a regular at a 7-Eleven convenience store where Patty was working when the two met and started dating. After they started dating, they fell head over heels in love. They only dated for a few years, and then the couple took the leap to get married in 1988. The two were excited to start their lives together, and they had just moved into their dream house, which was a small, white, adorable little house in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri is located in Jefferson County. This small, quaint house was in a subdivision overlooking a lake, and Patty says that this was easily the happiest time of her life. David and Patty were expecting their first son together, and baby Ryan was born in April of 1989, and Patty and David were completely in love with their new little squish ball, naturally. Ryan was a really fussy baby, and he had a hard time keeping down formula, and he seemed to vomit a lot more than what was considered a normal amount of spit-up. Ryan was actually sick so often that David and Patty felt like they had just kind of gotten used to their son always being sick. It was just a normal thing that happened at their house. The couple figured since Ryan looked like a perfectly healthy baby that maybe he would just grow out of this phase. This was long before the gluten-free frenzy and way before everybody was lactose intolerant. If you were sick, you would either get better or figure out how to live with it. After the first few months and as he got a little older and it just didn't seem like Ryan was getting any better. He was only an infant still, and he seemed to be actually getting progressively worse, a lot worse. On Friday, July 7th, 1989, Patty had given Ryan his last late-night bottle feeding, and Ryan started vomiting immediately after the feeding, almost instantly. The next morning, Ryan seemed to be feeling better, so Patty kept the plans that she had made with her sister to go swimming, and she left Ryan at home with his dad, David. But the next morning, on Sunday, July 9th, 1989, baby Ryan was three months old, And Patty went to the side of his crib and noticed that his lips were pressed pretty tightly together and it looked like Ryan was having a really hard time breathing. He also seemed lethargic and groggy. He was also still vomiting profusely. So, not good. When infants start breathing or go into what's called cardiac arrest, it can be one of the deadliest things for an infant, especially since their respiratory is usually the first thing to go. So, Patty calls the St. Louis Children's Hospital and after she explains to them Ryan's symptoms, they tell her, like, go ahead and bring him in immediately. And I'm just guessing here, but I would think that she was calling the hospital to make sure she wasn't overreacting. We all try not to be the mom that calls the doctor every time our baby sneezes, you know, but it's hard with infants. You, They can't tell you what's wrong, and it's even harder with a baby that seems like he's always sick. So after they told Patty to go ahead and bring Ryan in, she and David pack him up, get in the car immediately, and they drive three-month-old baby Ryan straight for the hospital. Patty had actually been trying to take Ryan 40 miles north of where they lived to meet her physician at the Children's Hospital in St. Louis that she had called before they left their house. But in her panicked state of mind, she got off the freeway too soon, and from there, the closest hospital would end up being the Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. She knew this was one of those things where you don't have time to waste or turn it around, and she knew that Ryan needed medical attention now. So the closest hospital is the one that she went to. Once the couple made it to the emergency room, Ryan was noticeably worse than he had been when they left their house to take him to the hospital. 
And this simple driving error that Patty made in her panic frenzy doesn't seem like a big deal now. But later, when you look back in the grand scheme of things, it may actually have been a huge deal. The doctors and nurses worked fast and drew Ryan's blood, ran an IV on him, got a urine sample from him, and immediately put Ryan on a respirator. Ryan was admitted into the ICU or the intensive care unit. The blood and urine samples would have to be sent to independent testing labs, and it would take a few days to get those results back. So, Patty and David are worried sick. They have no idea what's going on with their infant son. And Patty and David actually recall waiting for answers about what was wrong with their baby. Unsolved.com has a quote from David about the waiting game that they played in the emergency room that day. And David says, quote, It was just a shock to see a little baby incapacitated the way that he was. It was to the point where they said, Well, we don't know how long he's going to be here. We don't know what's wrong with him yet. So you may as well just go to the waiting room and stay there until we can tell you what's wrong. Ryan had been suffering with chronic gastric distress, which I found described as, quote, gastric distress is a group of digestive disorders that are associated with lingering symptoms of constipation, bloating, reflux, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and cramping, according to Biareference.com. But this seemed different than Ryan's usual symptoms. Patty and David actually rented a room at the hospital to be able to be close by Ryan's side instead of going home to stay since Ryan was going to be admitted at the hospital and have to stay until they figured out what was going on with him. I didn't know you could rent a hospital room. I've slept in many recliners at friends and families. I never knew this was an option. Maybe it's not anymore because I've never heard of it. And it did take three days for the blood results and urine tests to come back from the doctors to give Patty and David an exact diagnosis on their infant son. The lab results for Ryan's blood and urine samples came back and it's something terrifying to think about. The blood work and urine test came back that three-month-old baby Ryan had extremely high levels of ethylene glycol in his system, and for those of you who don't know, ethylene glycol is main active ingredient in antifreeze. Antifreeze is a coolant. It's extremely dangerous when consumed by humans and animals. Something else to take note of is that the human body does not produce ethylene glycol, so it's not something that his body could produce too much of or not enough of, like insulin, for example. Both Patty and David were completely shocked. They would never intentionally hurt their son, and they would definitely never poison their son. And keep in mind, Ryan's only three months old. He can't crawl around and get into cleaning supplies or chemicals that are around the house. Someone had to have given this to him. That's the only way that it makes sense that Ryan would have ingested it. The pediatrician that treated Ryan was Dr. Robert Lynch, and he had no choice but to report the fact that he believed that Ryan had been poisoned to the Missouri Division of Family Services. And as a doctor, he's legally obligated to report things like this. Also, things such as assault, neglect, abuse. People like doctors, teachers, nurses, etc. in the United States are what we call mandated reporters, which means they have no choice in reporting something that seems harmful or neglectful to the Department of Family Services. They took an oath when they took the job. They promised to protect people, and especially people who can't protect themselves, like children and the elderly. Dr. Robert Lynch also signed an affidavit stating that he did believe that Ryan had been poisoned by one or both of his parents, so naturally, after the test results came back, Patty and David were no longer allowed to be around their son unsupervised. Hospital personnel always had to be present when Patty and David visited with Ryan. It would either be two nurses or one doctor that had to be there to supervise them at all times. And custody of Ryan was given to Missouri Division of Family Services, and he would be placed into foster care. An investigation was started before Ryan was ever discharged from the hospital, and when Patty and David's home was searched, a bottle of fingernail polish remover was found inside the home, and more importantly, a half-empty jug of antifreeze was found inside the garage of the Stallings home. Which I will say, antifreeze is a pretty common household thing. There's multiple uses for antifreeze, and it's in most homes. I also have fingernail polish and antifreeze in my house right now. Don't come for me. 
And David had a pretty regular reason for having this half-empty jug of antifreeze in his house. He had recently rebuilt his car radiator. So the half-empty jug that was left was from the rebuild. These claims and allegations of one of Brian's parents being the ones that had poisoned the three-month-old baby with ethylene glycol wasn't very far-fetched because Patty did actually have a son before she gave birth to Ryan. She was young at the time. She was a single mom. It was her first son. She was homeless for the most part of the time that she had him, and she didn't have much of anything else to give this baby except for love. So when Patty was accused of child abuse for not being able to properly care for her son, Patty decided the best thing that she could do for him was to let her sister adopt the baby because she knew that her sister would be able to give the baby a better life. The abuse claims came because the baby was in the beginning stages of frostbite and malnutrition. When Patty's asked about this, she doesn't deny it. She says that the baby was in a state of malnutrition and on the verge of frostbite because so was she. She couldn't care for him at the time like he needed and it was in the baby's best interest no matter how hard of a choice it would be for Patty. She was a good mom, and good moms do what's best for their baby. So that's exactly what Patty did when she decided to let her sister adopt the baby. The claims of child abuse on her first son when she was much younger, before he was put up for adoption, and now the claims that she had poisoned her second son with antifreeze. The investigation looked like it was going to be a pretty simple one. I don't think they looked very far into the abuse claims on Patty's first child. I think they saw the words child abuse on her file, and they ran with it, thinking that this one was going to be a pretty open and shut case. Or was it? Patty and David were separated and questioned for hours, and the investigators wanted to know if the couple fought, and if so, how often. They wanted to know if one of the parents was jealous over the other parent, giving Ryan most of their attention, and they almost insisted that one of them had to have been the one to poison Ryan, Patty in particular. At one point, the couple both took a polygraph, and David was told that Patty had failed her polygraph test. I don't put much stock in polygraph tests personally, and I don't think a lot of people do, especially since they're not even admissible in court. But Patty hadn't failed her polygraph, and David is quoted as saying that his scattered emotions and mental state almost just for a second let him believe that she would have failed her test and been the one to poison her own. David said, quote, it was just for a second. He goes on to say, then my senses came back and I said, they're crazy. And oddly enough, Ryan's stay in the hospital lasted for 12 days and he actually did start to get better and was even able to be discharged from the hospital on July 17th, 1989. But Ryan wouldn't be going home with his parents when he was discharged. He was going to have to remain in the foster care system until David and Patty could be ruled out as the ones that had poisoned him. Patty was quoted as saying, quote, It happened really fast. I kept thinking, this is going to get straightened out. I thought somebody would figure this out. They'd say, oops, and we'd all go home. She went on to say, quote, I don't think I believed it. I just went around the entire day saying no, no, no. And I had just seen him. I had just spent the night with him. I was mad at everybody, and the whole thing just seemed so absurd. Ryan would remain in the foster care system for the rest of the summer, and David and Patty were allotted certain times and certain days to be able to visit with Ryan. These visits were monitored and highly supervised. Patty and David could only visit Ryan once a week every Thursday for only an hour at a time. Both Patty and David said that they started to live for their Thursday visits with Ryan. As a part of the state's protection plan for Ryan, when Patty and David did get to visit with Ryan, they were not permitted to bring any food, drinks, items, or anything for Ryan. During these visits with his parents, Ryan seemed to be doing a lot better since he had been discharged from the hospital on July 17th. Which is what you would typically think would happen if you're not being poisoned anymore. Naturally, you would start to get better. It wasn't until their sixth visit with Ryan on August 31st, 1989, that David's parents came with him and Patty to visit with Ryan. And David's parents had only stayed for about 20 minutes to visit. They wanted to leave Patty and David the rest of the visit to be able to spend time alone with their son. This is when Patty was left alone with Ryan for just a few short minutes while David walked his parents out of the visitation center and told them goodbye. 
David was gone for a literal matter of minutes. Ryan had been fussy and seemed to be hungry during the first half of their visit, and Patty was bottle-feeding Ryan when David walked his parents out of the visitation center. The rest of the visit seemed to go pretty normally and without incident. That is, until the next day when Ryan started having the same vomiting and the same trouble breathing that he had had before. Ryan had to be taken back to the Cardinal Glennon's Children's Hospital again on September 4th, 1989. He was having trouble breathing and vomiting again. This had only been days after Patty and David had last visited with Ryan. When David walked his parents out of the visitation center and Patty had been left alone with him for less than a five-minute span, but in Patty's defense, she hadn't been able to take any bags, wallet, purse, diaper bags. She had not been able to take anything inside of the visitation center with her. And I also feel like with the situation at hand, they would have been checking her, maybe even searching them as they came in, especially being that they're the main suspects in this case. When Ryan was admitted back into the Cardinal Glennon's Children's Hospital, he seemed to be showing the same symptoms of ethylene glycol poisoning that he had been showing when David and Patty brought him in the first time back in July. But Patty and David had both been supervised at the visitation center while they were visiting with Ryan. So now the question is, how did Patty actually manage to poison baby Ryan again? This time, he had been poisoned under strict supervision by the state. The answer seemed simple. She put ethylene glycol in the bottle that she had been feeding Ryan when David came back to the visitation room from walking his parents outside. Right? Naturally, the hospital did more blood work, more urine samples on Ryan after he was brought in just days after their last visit, after he was admitted for symptoms again. And this time, when the lab results came back, the levels of ethylene glycol in Ryan's system were substantially higher than they had been, even on his first trip to the emergency room. The blood and urine samples were sent to two separate labs, and they both come back with the same results. The Smith-Klein-Beecham Clinic and the toxicology lab at the University of St. Louis. Three-month-old baby Ryan had antifreeze in his blood and in his urine again. But sometimes in these true crime cases, one plus one does equal two. And sometimes, even when something does make the most sense and it seems like the easiest answer, it isn't always the right one. And sometimes, even experts make mistakes. Ryan was treated for ethylene glycol poisoning during the second time that he was admitted to the ICU. Treatment for ethylene glycol poisoning consists of fasting and a slow drip IV of ethanol. The ethanol drip is supposed to counteract the poisoning of ethylene glycol. All of the bottles that had been used to feed Ryan in the last few weeks had been tested, and one of the bottles that Ryan had been fed with had trace amounts of ethylene glycol on it. Even though all of the bottles that were used to feed Ryan had been washed, refilled with formula, and used over and over again, there were somehow still trace amounts of antifreeze found on one of them. Was this the same bottle that Patty had used to feed Ryan at the last supervised visit? Or was it a different one? Either way, I don't think it really mattered. I think it was there, and that's all the prosecution needed to know. This is also about the same time when the prosecutor learned that the person assigned to supervise the visit between Ryan and his parents had also gotten up and left the visitation room for a short amount of time during the visit with the Stallings the last time they visited with baby Ryan. So now they're pretty certain that Patty either put antifreeze in Ryan's bottle or she spiked the tub of formula during her last visit. The very next day after Ryan was admitted to the hospital for the second time for ethylene glycol poisoning, this time while he was in the state's care, Patty and David were met outside their house as they were returning home from the hospital where two detectives had a warrant for Patty's arrest. The charges were assault. Patty was arrested in her front yard on September 5, 1989. Hospital personnel, detectives, investigators, and the state's prosecutor all seemed to have come up with the same conclusion. Patty Stallings was the one responsible for poisoning her son, Ryan. Oddly enough, though, David was never under suspicion in Ryan's poisoning case, and even though he never was a suspect in Ryan's case, David was still never allowed to have custody of his son, Ryan, back. 
So while Patty sat inside of a county jail cell, Ryan's health was getting progressively worse, and doctors actually came to inform David that they didn't believe that he was going to make it much longer, that there wasn't much more they would be able to do for Ryan, that they had done everything possible to help him, and that David should probably prepare himself for the worst. Patty was stripped of the right to see her son, no supervised visits, and even though David did try to get Patty released from jail long enough to say her goodbyes to her son, the judge denied the request and even told her that he wasn't letting a baby killer out to say goodbye to her son that she harmed, according to the Forensic Files episode on this case. And Patty was never able to see her son again before he passed. On September 7th, 1989, Ryan was put on a life support machine, and David called his church minister to ask if they could come and baptize Ryan in preparation for his death. Around 6.30 p.m., both David and the doctors agreed that it was time to unhook the life support machines that they had been using to keep Ryan alive. As heartbroken as he was, David agreed. He knew that Ryan wasn't getting any better and that there was nothing else they could do for him. The doctors and staff had done everything they could aside from making him as comfortable as possible until he passed. All life-saving measures and machines were stopped. Afterwards, Ryan held David in his arms for the next three hours while he watched the levels on the monitor get lower and lower with every breath that Ryan took. David just held his son Ryan while his heartbeat slowly came to a complete stop. And after Ryan's passing, David wasn't allowed to contact Patty and give her the news that Ryan had passed away. A social worker from the state was the one that visited with Patty to give her the news about Ryan's passing. And the social worker thought that the way Patty had reacted emotionally to hearing the news about Ryan's passing was odd. Even though there's absolutely no right way to react when you find out that your baby has just passed away and everybody except for your husband thinks that you're the one responsible. But this social worker actually felt so strongly about the way that Patty had reacted that she went to the prosecutors and the investigators to give a statement. The statement that the social worker gave basically said that Patty didn't react in the way an innocent mom that loved her son would react. That she felt like Patty should have been more emotional, more empathetic, and overall more sympathetic than she was. And this would just end up being another piece of evidence that they could use against her later. The very next day after Ryan passed away, Patty's assault charges were dropped and the charges of first-degree murder were brought to her for the death of her five-month-old son. The charges were brought to her on September 8, 1989. And since her charges were more severe now than the original assault charges, Patty was held without bail and wasn't even released temporarily or on supervised furlough in order to attend Ryan's funeral. Furlough, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically when the court agrees to let you and a few armed officers attend a funeral or an emergency goodbye for an immediate family member if they're about to pass away or if the family's called in to say their last goodbyes. There was an autopsy done on Ryan after his passing, and the ethylene glycol poisoning was pretty damning evidence all in itself, but the calcium oxalate crystals that were found on Ryan's brain were just another smoking gun that pointed directly at Patty. Calcium oxalate crystals are typically formed when the human body tries to break down things such as antifreeze or ethylene glycol. Now Patty's sitting in a county jail, grieving the loss of her son. She's being accused of murdering her son. She starts having trouble eating, sleeping, and to top it off, the prosecutor on Patty's case was pretty clear that he was going for the death penalty. Somebody has to pay for the death of a baby. David starts borrowing money from everybody that he knows to try to help him financially to pay for an attorney for Patty. Because it didn't matter what charges the state trumped up, David believed that Patty would never hurt their son and that she would definitely never intentionally poison him. Patty stuck to her guns. She did not poison Ryan. She would never hurt Ryan. And she loved Ryan more than life itself. Ryan passed away on September 7th, 1989. And Patty found out while she was still incarcerated that she was actually four months pregnant with another baby. Patty had actually been pregnant when she was first arrested. She just wasn't far enough along to realize it. And Patty was going to have to sit in a county jail while she awaited her trial for first-degree murder. Because the newly appointed prosecuting attorney, George McElroy, was convinced that he had enough to convict Patty. 
George McElroy dove headfirst into prepping for this case. He brought in witnesses and experts and all the evidence they had planned to use to prosecute Patty. The smoking gun would be the bottle that had been tested and trace evidence of ethylene glycol were found on it. And the half-empty jug of antifreeze that was found inside the Stallings' home. And also the fact that Ryan seemed to be recovering and getting better until he was left alone with Patty on their last supervised visit with Ryan. And Patty's defense attorney, Eric Rathbone, claimed that he only took Patty's case as a favor because nobody else would touch it. Patty had a list of over 20 character witnesses that she wanted her lawyer, Eric Rathbone, to call on her behalf at trial, but that never happened. In February of 1990, while Patty was still incarcerated, she ended up giving birth to a son who was one month premature. Patty and David named this baby David Jr. and nicknamed him DJ. And even though David was never considered a suspect in Ryan's death, and was never charged with anything having to do with the case of Ryan being poisoned, he wasn't allowed to take custody of baby DJ either, which is something that has confused me from day one. Patty would have to go back to her jail cell after she recovered from giving birth to DJ, and David would have to go home to an empty house without his newborn son, while he was also grieving the loss of his first son, Ryan, all while he tries to process the fact if a jury finds his wife guilty, she may never come home either. So David's going through it too. DJ was immediately placed in foster care while Patty awaited the start of her trial. What Patty and David didn't know was that little baby DJ may have been their saving grace. Baby DJ was only a few weeks old when Patty found out that he also had to be rushed to St. Louis Children's Hospital. And People.com has a quote from Patty saying, quote, The social worker told me that he was listless, vomiting, and breathing funny, she says. She went on to say, quote, I went into shock. Those were the same things wrong with Ryan. And St. Louis Children's Hospital was the same hospital that Patty had originally been trying to take Ryan to, the very first time that she rushed him to the ER back in July. And remember, she got off the freeway too soon and ended up at Cardinal Glennon's Children's Hospital. So now, Patty and David's newborn son is showing the exact same signs of being poisoned with antifreeze. And Patty's sitting in a jail waiting first-degree murder trial to start, and David nor Patty were allowed to be around DJ because of the allegations of murder. But that was the point. Patty hadn't been allowed to be around DJ. She had given birth and he was immediately taken. How could she have possibly poisoned baby DJ from her jail cell? She couldn't have. Within a month of baby DJ being born, he was diagnosed with methylmonic acidemia, also known as MMA. He was diagnosed by the St. Louis Children's Hospital. MMA is an extremely rare genetic disorder. People who are diagnosed with MMA have an extremely hard time breaking down certain foods like fats, proteins, and especially milk. Hmm. And with the body not being able to break those foods down, it leads to a chemical buildup in their system called propionic acid. Want to know a fun fact about propionic acid? It's one carbon atom different than ethylene glycol. So... If someone was reading the lab results rather quickly, or if someone who was unfamiliar with MMA or propionic acids, you could easily mistake these results as a case of someone being poisoned by antifreeze. Luckily, in DJ's case, his diagnosis of MMA was caught the first time he was admitted into the hospital, and even though MMA isn't curable, it can be managed with restricted diet and a guidance of medical professionals. So, DJ was treated and went back into foster care. During the investigation and in preparation for the trial, Patty's attorney, Eric Rathbone, did try to introduce the theory that maybe Ryan did have MMA and he just wasn't properly diagnosed or treated for it, which would have caused his death. This would have given the jury a very good case of reasonable doubt, and it actually makes a lot more sense than a loving mother poisoning her son with antifreeze. Patty was able to be released on bail through a recognizance bond, which is unheard of in a murder trial. 
And justicedenied.org says that Patty's attorney, Eric Rathbone, said that he had a degree in biochemistry and he also stated that he had looked at the test results and determined, quote-unquote, on his own, that there was no reason to question these findings. This quote was concerning Ryan and DJ's lab results and their similarities. But it does seem to me like the prosecutor, George McElroy, was kind of aware that Ryan could have been suffering from MMA, but he wasn't tested for it. The prosecutor, George McElroy, was quoted saying, quote, We were concerned that if it came out that David Jr. or Ryan, for that matter, had this methylmonic acidosis, unless it could be shown that he actually died of that, or it was some kind of contributing factor to his death, we believe that that would not be relevant and, in fact, might cause the jury to go off on a wild goose chase and make a decision based on something that's not really relevant. Hello? That seems relevant. It also seems like Patty's defense attorney did not have this information, which is exactly why it was oh so easy for their prosecutors to try to convince the jury that DJ's diagnosis and Ryan's death due to poisoning had no connection to one another that DJ had MMA, and that Ryan had been poisoned at the hands of his mother, and that was the end of it. He even dismissed the fact that both boys had the same symptoms and the same genetics. Patty also encouraged her lawyer to try to gather as many expert witnesses that specialize in rare genetic disorders like MMA to testify at her trial, but just like that long list of character witnesses that she had asked him to call, he didn't. Patty's trial started on January 29, 1991, and Patty's attorney did try to get the judge to introduce the idea that Ryan could have possibly also been suffering from MMA, which would kind of throw out the idea that Patty had been poisoning Ryan and caused his death. The judge denied this request, saying that there wasn't enough evidence of this being a plausible theory, and that just because DJ had been diagnosed with MMA, that didn't mean that Ryan was suffering from it too, and that they would have to bring some form of proof in to be able to present this as evidence in a jury. So, the trial continued. Instead of hearing this theory, the jury heard all the evidence that seemed to point directly at Patty. The jury was told about the levels of ethylene glycol in Ryan's system when his blood and urine was taken. They were also told about the one bottle that was found to have trace amounts of ethylene glycol in it. They were made aware of the fact that Ryan had seemed to be getting much better until his last visit with Patty and David, and the jury was also told that after the visit, the ethylene glycol levels were significantly higher than they had been on his previous admission to the ER. The jury was shown a set of charts showing the retention that ethylene glycol poisoning could cause. They were also made aware of the calcium oxalate crystals that had been found on Ryan's brain during his autopsy. And the jury was told that calcium oxalate crystals usually only form when the body tries to break down things like ethylene glycol. All of this evidence is super damning. What the jury didn't hear that may have swayed them was the fact that during Ryan's first autopsy, it was said that MMA could have been a probable cause for Ryan's death. But, since Ryan was never actually tested for MMA, nobody would know for sure. Something else the jury wouldn't be aware of is the fact that DJ had been diagnosed with MMA. This didn't help Patty's trial at all. She was found guilty after the jury deliberated for 10 hours. Patty was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and David collapsed right there in the courtroom after he heard Patty's sentencing. David actually had to be taken to the ER from the courthouse and be treated himself. In May of 1991, Patty's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, which is a TV show series, and after it aired, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of calls coming in from geneticists and doctors to make sure that somebody knew that MMA symptoms are almost identical to ethylene glycol poisoning. These doctors and geneticists specialized in MMA and thought it was more likely that Ryan also had MMA after they heard about DJ's diagnosis. It was probably more likely than Patty poisoned Ryan. 
because the symptoms do look so similar and because they do actually put off the same kind of chemical compound. Dr. Shoemaker, who's a biochemist at St. Louis University, requested samples of Ryan's blood, and when he got the results back, he knew he was right. When he was reading Ryan's test results, he did not find ethylene glycol in Ryan's system. What he did find was propionic acid, which is what I was describing earlier. That's one carbon fiber difference from ethylene glycol. If you are not extremely familiar with this knowledge, it could be easily misdiagnosed as a case of poisoning instead of an MMA diagnosis. But propionic acid is one of the metabolites that's extremely toxic. Also, propionic acid is something that is produced in people who have MMA because the body just accumulates these propionic acids. Dr. Shoemaker was a junior faculty team member at the time that he retested Ryan's blood. So Dr. Shoemaker took his findings to a few of his co-workers and higher-ups. Almost everyone that Dr. Shoemaker showed these results to agreed that Ryan had not been poisoned with antifreeze, that he had actually been misdiagnosed and was also suffering from MMA. But there were a few of the higher-ups that just weren't sure if they agreed with Dr. Shoemaker or not. But luckily for Patty, there had been someone else who had been watching the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And it just so happened to be a senior team member of the faculty, William S. Sly. And he was the head of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at St. Louis University. Dr. Sly actually went so far as to send out multiple samples to multiple different labs in the area. But the samples that he sent out for testing were samples that he had made sure to only put propionic acid in, nothing else. So when Dr. Sly got those lab results back, they should have came back as a sample of a patient who was suffering from MMA. Instead, they all came back as ethylene glycol poisoning or antifreeze poisoning. So about six months after Patty's trial, George McElroy, who had been the lead prosecutor on Patty's case, went to Judge Kramer, who presided over the trial, and said that he believed Patty had inefficient counsel. McElroy asked for Patty to be given another trial, and Judge Kramer said that this is something that he has rarely ever seen happen. Prosecutors almost never come to his chambers in defense of a defendant that they had already successfully prosecuted. When Patty was submitting reasons for an ineffective counsel to try to get a new trial, she also stated that she had given her defense attorney, Eric Rathbone, a list of over 20 character witnesses, and of course, Eric Rathbone felt attacked in the media, so he came to his own defense. He says that if he would have called any of these character witnesses, that it could have easily backfired on Patty, just as easily as it could have helped her in her case. It also seemed like the lead prosecutor, McElroy, had learned some information that he didn't know before. Things that he hadn't been aware of when the trial was going on, and he had just recently learned. The former lab results and tests that had been done showed the difference in retention between MMA lab results and ethylene glycol poisoning. And although they do look similar, there are very distinct differences. On July 11, 1991, Patty filed a lawsuit against the Cardinal Children's Glennon's Hospital, the labs that tested the samples, and a lawsuit against the three doctors that treated Ryan. Patty also hired a new lawyer named Robert Ritter. So, Patty's new lawyer, Robert Ritter, and the prosecutor, McElroy, sat down and they had a meeting in preparation for Patty's new trial. When Patty's new attorney asked McElroy what he needed to be able to prove that Patty was innocent, Prosecutor McElroy told him that he needed someone who had not been involved in the case or the trial previously and someone that had no association with it. He also needed that person to be an expert in metabolic diseases. So Robert Ritter finds a geneticist from Yale University, uh, Dr. Pierre Ronaldo. Dr. Ronaldo was given all the information and former test results, and he even runs some of his own labs and tests. Dr. Ronaldo spent six weeks on these labs and test results, only to confirm that Dr. Shoemaker had been right all along. 
Dr. Ronaldo is quoted telling Bill Smith, who's a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, This is totally unacceptable, unbelievable, out of this world. I was astonished. I could not believe that somebody would let this go through a criminal trial unchallenged. Dr. Ronaldo also believed that since Ryan hadn't actually been poisoned with antifreeze, like they claimed, that the ethanol drip that was administered during Ryan's treatment could have actually been the reason that he passed away. And it also could have been the reason that the calcium oxalate crystals were found on Ryan's brain. So after all this comes out, Prosecutor McElroy says, quote, Dr. Ronaldo was very convincing. I was persuaded that Patricia did not murder her son. My charge as a prosecutor is to seek justice, and justice for Patricia Stallings required that I seek a dismissal. George McElroy dropped all of the charges against Patty on September 20th, 1991, after she had spent the last 14 months in jail for a crime that never happened. I do like to give credit where credit is due, and Prosecutor McElroy manned up to his mistakes, and he did right his wrongs. And I would almost rather have someone that cares too much about the death of a child versus someone that doesn't care enough. Patty would go on to win these lawsuits that she had filed against the hospital, the labs, and the doctors for an undisclosed amount, and Patty and David were finally able to take baby DJ home where he belonged. Prosecutor McElroy went on to publicly apologize to the Stallings, which is also super rare, saying, quote, We can't undo the sufferings the Stallings have endured during this ordeal, and I apologize. I hope their lives will be happier and fuller in the future. The National Library of Medicine reports that Patty was lucky in some sense because there was only a one in four chance that DJ would inherit a version of both of his parents' genetics to also have MMA. If DJ had been born a healthy baby, there's a good chance that Patty Stallings would still be sitting behind bars today. DJ grew up on a strict diet and was closely monitored by both his parents and his doctors. George McElroy went on to run for re-election for Jefferson County Prosecutor in 1994, While he was campaigning, he ran an ad in the newspaper, and the ad had an excerpt from a letter that was written from a doctor from St. Louis Medical Center. And the excerpt said that he thought that George McElroy had handled the Ryan Stallings case properly, which naturally got under Patty's skin. Because while he did eventually right his wrongs, this isn't the kind of case that you refer to when you're running for anything. This just makes it where grieving parents of the child that, that you tried to convince the public that they poisoned to death is your biggest accomplishment. This got under Patty's skin enough that she actually ended up donating $10,000 to McElroy's running opponent, Robert Wilkins. And Robert Wilkins would go on to win that election for Jefferson County Prosecutor's Office. Sadly, Patty and David would go on to divorce, and DJ would go on to pass away at a super early age at the age of 23 on September 17, 2013. And David passed away in 2019 after he suffered from a long-term illness that was unnamed everywhere I looked. And that is the case of Patricia Stallings. That was a wild one. (laughs) Well, that was fun. Let's do it again. Same time, same place, next Wednesday. See you then. That's how my mama murdered a podcast. That's how my mama murdered a podcast.